It's a good thing cats aren't the size of large dogs, says an old joke, because if they were, they'd eat their owners. As a cat-loving scientist, my first reaction was to laugh, quickly followed by the thought, how can I research this idea? Sadly, even science has its limits. Until we're able to produce 75-pound house cats, we'll never get a definitive answer. That's not to say that science is entirely silent on the question. A 2014 research paper was widely reported to conclude that cats would kill you if they were bigger, as the Orlando Sentinel declared in its headline. USA Today eliminated the subtleties, declaring, your cat may want to kill you. In reality, the research paper said no such thing. Rather, the scientists compared behavioral tendencies, such as aggressiveness and sociability among five feline species ranging in size from the house cat to the African lion. The paper's primary conclusion was that personality-wise, there aren't many differences among cats, regardless of size. Zookeepers have told me the same thing. If you can read the expressions and body postures of your cat, you can understand what a lion or tiger is thinking. The researchers did not suggest that house cats, were they the size of lions, would be sizing you up for supper. It was the journalists and bloggers who made that leap. On the topic of eating you, a number of these journalists also pointed out that when people die in their homes and are not discovered, dogs eat their owners' bodies much more frequently than cats. One medical journal, for example, included gruesome case studies of three corpses eaten by dogs, but only one by cats. Regardless of its implication for potential man-eating moggies, the research reveals an important fact. In many ways, a cat's a cat, whatever its size. For non-Brits, moggy is a word used in England for cat, often specifically a non-pedigreed cat. This finding will come as no surprise to anyone who's spent hours watching internet videos of tigers chasing laser pointer dots, leopards jumping into cardboard boxes, and lions rolling in catnip. The point that our household friends are little different from their wild relatives was driven home to me a few years ago on a trip to South Africa with my wife, Melissa. While driving around at night near Kruger National Park, a common sighting was a slender, tawny feline, faintly spotted or striped, the small cat caught in the spotlight's glare for just a moment before he darted back into the shadows. The first few I saw were reasonably close to the game lodge where we were staying. Based on their size and appearance, I presumed they were pets that belonged to one of the staff members, or perhaps the lodge kept them to keep rodents in check. In any case, they certainly seemed to be domestic cats, out for a ramble in the African wilderness. No good can come of this, I thought, with all the larger predators about. But that's their business, not mine. So I didn't pay much attention to these small waifs, nor was I disappointed when they quickly disappeared back into the bush. I'd try to give them a nice pat when I saw them back in camp. But one day we encountered one of these cats miles from the lodge, and I realized that this could not be anyone's pet. And indeed, he wasn't. He was an African wildcat, the species from which domestic cats arose. We'll discuss in Chapter 6 how we know this. Further scrutiny revealed distinctive features, legs longer than most domestic cats, and a striking black-tipped tail. Still, if you saw one from your kitchen window, your first thought would be, look at that beautiful cat in the backyard, not, how'd that African wildcat get to New Jersey? In terms of behavior, too, most domestic cats differ little from their ancestors. Sure, they're friendlier, or at least more tolerant of humans, 
and sometimes more sociable to each other. But in other ways, their hunting, grooming, sleeping, and general manner, they behave just like wildcats. Indeed, the ease with which abandoned cats go feral and revert to their ingrained ancestral ways is evidence of how little the domestic cat has evolved. For this reason, domestic cats are commonly referred to as barely or semi-domesticated. Domestication is the process by which animals and plants are modified by their interactions with humans in a way that benefits us. By modified, I mean they have evolved through genetic changes that result in behavioral, physiological, and anatomical differences from their ancestors. Incidentally, evolution in a biological sense is a genetically based change in a population through time. Such changes during domestication are just as much evolution as what goes on in nature. In contrast to cats, fully domesticated species are substantially different from their wild ancestors. Consider the barnyard pig. Big, portly, pink, curly tail, floppy ears, very little hair. Sus domestica is the quintessential domesticated animal, a species sculpted by humans, greatly modified from the ancestral boar, Sus scrofa, to suit our needs and desires. Or contemplate cows, far removed from their majestic wild cattle ancestors, turned into meat and milk-producing machines by our selective breeding over the millennia. For example, modern cows have enormous udders capable of producing up to eight gallons of milk a day. In contrast, the mammae of the cow's ancestor, the auroch, were barely noticeable. Similar selection applied to plants has created food crops like corn and wheat that are vastly different from their wild progenitors. Not so for domestic cats. Look underneath the paint job, the variation in hair length, color, and texture, and most domestic cats are nearly indistinguishable from wild cats. The many great differences in anatomy, physiology, and behavior that distinguish most domesticated species from their ancestors don't exist in cats. Recent genome studies confirm this view. Whereas dogs have diverged from wolves in many genes, domestic cats and wild cats differ in only a handful. Cats truly are scarcely domesticated. But this statement comes with a major asterisk. A small minority of cats are members of specific breeds. The rest are lumped into the category domestic short hairs and long hairs, a more polite equivalent of mutt. A breed is a group of individuals that share a distinctive set of traits that distinguish them from other members of the species. The distinctiveness of a breed is maintained by mating members of a breed only with each other generation after generation firmly establishing the genes for these traits throughout the breed. More technically, a breed is defined as a stock of animals or plants within a species having a distinctive appearance and typically having been developed and maintained by deliberate selection by humans. We'll see in chapters 13 and 14 that breed development and maintenance in some cases can be more complicated than I've just described. Cat breeds vary in how distinctive they are. Some deviate little from the standard model, looking like a typical domestic cat, perhaps differing slightly due to curly hair or floppy ears. But many cat breeds diverge greatly from the ancestral physique and behavior. If you happened upon a member of one of these breeds on the African savanna, you'd never mistake her for an African wildcat. Indeed, some breeds are remarkably different not only from a standard house cat, 
but also from all other members of the Felidae, the scientific name for the cat family, encompassing everything from domestic cats to ocelots, lions, and tigers. Selective breeding, in other words, has created cats unlike those produced by millions of years of feline evolution. So we have a cat conundrum. Most pusses are little changed from the ancestral version, yet a minority are radically different. How can cat evolution be simultaneously in slow and fast gear? Clearly, Felis catus, the domestic cat, is not a monolithic entity, evolving as one. Quite the contrary, multiple realms of cats exist, and these realms are evolving in very different ways. To understand why, we have to think about the different categories of cat living around us. On the one hand, household pets are divided between those that are members of specific breeds and those that aren't. On the other hand, unowned cats, those that don't live in people's homes, can also be split into two groups, those living entirely on their own and those being fed and taken care of by people, at least to some extent. Some people more finely divide unknown cats into many categories, but the dichotomy I present captures the key differences for our purposes. The possibility that different groups of cats are evolving in different ways opens the door to questions about the future. Now that cats have traded the savanna for human environs, are we witnessing the origin of species, the domestic cat splitting into multiple lines, each going its own evolutionary way? To address these questions, Let's consider the types of selection acting on these groups, starting with the cats belonging to specific breeds. Charles Darwin recognized that the way animal and plant breeders work is analogous to what goes on in nature. Individuals with certain traits survive and reproduce more than individuals without those traits. If the traits are genetically based, that is, if individuals with the traits have different gene versions than the individuals without them, then those versions of the genes and the traits they produce will become more common in the next generation. Continued over many generations, such selection can lead to substantial change. That is the way that species evolve by natural selection in nature, and it is the same process, called artificial selection at the hands of humans, underlying the development and refinement of new breeds. In fact, much of Darwin's evidence for the effectiveness of natural selection in On the Origin of Species came from examples of the breeding practices of farmers and hobbyists, not surprisingly, since no one was studying evolution in nature at the time. Darwin subsequently wrote an entire book on the subject, The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. We'll postpone for now discussion of why breeders choose to select for the specific traits they favor and why they even bother to create new breeds in the first place. The salient point is that breed development is an evolutionary process that produces plants and animals with entirely new features or new combinations of existing features. Because all members of a breed possess the genes responsible for these features, a breed retains its distinctiveness from one generation to the next. That's why breeders talk about the pedigree of a specific individual. It demonstrates that an individual is descended from multiple generations of ancestors who are also members of that breed, and thus the individual should reliably possess the breed's particular features. For this reason, I will refer to cats that are members of a breed as pedigreed. Most owned cats, however, are not members of any breed. About 85% of pet cats in the United States 
compared to 50% or fewer of all dogs. These are the cats in most people's homes and that you see in pet stores and animal shelters. They may be a genetic mix of several breeds, or much more commonly, cats with no pedigreed ancestry at all. As a group, they have no defining characteristics other than being domestic cats. If you tell me you have a domestic short hair, the only thing I know about him is that he's a cat with short hair. By contrast, tell me you have a member of a specific breed, say a Singapura, and I immediately have a picture in my head of what your cat looks like and maybe even how she behaves. More importantly for our purposes, the majority, more than 90% of household pets in the United States are neutered, so aren't contributing their genes to the next generation. They're an evolutionary dead end. The pet cats we have in our houses are the result of the evolutionary descent from the African wildcat, but most of them are not shaping the future evolution of the species. Rather, most reproduction among non-pedigreed cats is going on outside the house, in alleys, woods, and farms, out of our control. The cats themselves are deciding who breeds and who doesn't. No artificial selection there. We are not choosing which ones can breed and which ones can't, so there is no selection for traits that we might favor. Some of these cats exist on their own, away from and independent of humans. They live lives very similar to the ancestral wildcats, and we'd expect natural selection to be favoring them to be just the way they are, hewing to the formula that has made wildcats successful for millions of years. Many unknown cats, however, live in proximity to people, often interacting with and being fed by us. For these cats, we can imagine a mix of selective pressures, in some ways favoring the ancestral wildcat ways for survival outside, but also favoring traits beneficial for living around and mooching off of us. Of course, even better than imagining would be scientific data on how natural selection is shaping these cats. As we'll discuss later on, surprisingly little research has been conducted on how natural selection affects these cats, but the time is ripe for that to change. This, then, is the sense in which the modern cat world is divided, one prong entering new evolutionary territory, producing felines unlike any the world has ever seen, perhaps even qualifying as fully domesticated. Meanwhile, many cats live a lifestyle not very different from their ancestors, out in nature, dealing with the elements, interacting with other species, impacting ecosystems. Because they are in charge of their love lives, they are determining their own evolutionary future. And not surprisingly, they're sticking with the time-tested wildcat blueprint.